0: One where we removed the bears we moved them physically loaded them in the department beaver and flew them 200 miles and dropped them (laughs) gave them a one-way ride i bet
1: you'd want the right kind of drugs if you've got a bear in the back of an airplane well you
0: do you know and the drugs are pretty good but the problem we had is uh the drug manufacturers didn't anticipate alaska ordering so much telazole at one time and so There became a a North America-wide shortage of telazol after we were running this program. (laughs) And so... You ever have one wake up when you're flying somewhere? No, we never had one wake up. Um, We were prepared, you know, we... We we carried sidearms, reach behind you and stab him with another well, dart. we had, had, we had, we had uh, syringes loaded. Yeah, uh, yeah. But we you know we had some nerve wracking times. We had them lightly dosed, and they'd be growling in the back of the airplane. <laughs> <and> stuff, <so. laughs>
1: These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice. From folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. Sig is a leading provider and manufacturer
2: of firearms, electro optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, Sig Sauer Inc. has evolved
1: and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, Sig Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military, the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of of Elite Firearms Instruction and Tactical Training at the Sig Sauer Academy
2: located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit sigsauer.com.
1: Alrighty, sir. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for coming out here. You have a fascinating history and you are the expert in the subject that I care the most about right now, but you were born in South Africa.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: And how long did you live there?
0: Well, I was born in 1950, lived there for 10 years, and then uh, immigrated uh, in 1960 and came to New York.
1: Do you have good memories of your time in Africa?
0: I do. It's, uh, South Africa is a fantastic country. And, uh, but at that time, uh, I really had very little wildlife outside the national parks. That's all changed. Uh, there's a, a lot of game ranching. It's probably the most successful game ranching country in the world
1: yeah that in Texas right they've yeah got a lot of similarities. yeah there are a lot of
0: similarities there yeah
1: yeah it's it's neat for me to see um I was in Texas earlier this year, and they have a handful of species that have done really well in Texas that have gone extinct in their native habitat, right, and they've been able to take those animals from Texas and then um get them going again back in their native habitat, yeah, what a time to be alive, yeah that's that, right that we can pull something like that off, yeah. Okay, so then what happened in New York?
0: Well, I did my high school years in New York, and uh, I was very interested in wildlife. I didn't know there was a, I didn't know you could be a wildlife biologist (laughs) at the time. I, you know, like most kids, I thought I wanted to be a forest ranger or something like that. And I remember taking a, a series of tests that my guidance counselor gave me, and she said she just looked at those and her eyes widened she said you need to do something in the outdoors and i said yeah that's what i've been saying all along
1: <laughs> well there's a there's kind of a, a misconception at least there was for me um when when i went to college i started out wanting to study wildlife biology for the same reason and i was really interested in impacting wildlife policy you know i'd grown up during a time when we were really radically affected by, uh, no longer being able to hunt mountain lions with dogs and, you know, wolves were just starting to show up. And, you know, I was seeing all these, these wildlife policies that I thought, man, this is hurting ranchers so badly. It's hurting loggers so badly. And I thought, well, I'll just become a wildlife biologist and I'll be able to, to change all this stuff. And of course that's, that's not the, not probably the move at least in the short term to get that done then when i got to college and looked at the curriculum it had very little to do with wildlife biology there was a lot of math going on there
0: yeah and actually i think that's a problem yeah Uh, the the course i struggled with the most was calculus and it's a required course although i have heard recently that uh, a lot of wildlife programs across the country are dropping those sorts of requirements and uh I think that has been a huge problem uh, for wildlife biologists, uh, too much focus on academic training and not nearly enough focus on practical wildlife management.
1: Sure. I mean, you've got to spend time in the field and learn how to start asking the appropriate questions and developing a hypothesis, yeah. um, how to get data that will stand up to peer review. Like, that's extremely challenging.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. There, there are two aspects to wildlife management. One is a very practical aspect of being an area biologist and being responsible for the day-to-day wildlife management problems. And then the other is uh, the very technical side of it, keeping up with the new techniques uh, like uh, DNA and uh, uh, GIS uh, mapping, you know, mm-hmm. uh, satellite uh, photography techniques, all of that kind of thing. Uh, some, some of those uh, parts of it are so specialized <clears throat> that really a practical wildlife manager can't be an expert in everything. And uh, I, I think uh, the, the field has actually gone far too uh, much towards the technical aspects of it and not nearly focused enough on the practical aspects of it. So it's tough for agencies to hire practical... Uh, minded wildlife biologists to do the day-to-day work that needs to be done. And uh, one of the real interesting things that I discovered in my career is uh, there's a lot of stuff published in scientific literature relating to wildlife management and very little of it has any practical value. And the average uh, wildlife biologist in the field, wildlife biologist, collects more good data Over the course of his lifetime, than all the university professors put together. Sure, and so uh, it's. I think the the uh, wildlife management profession needs to change and 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 get back to its roots.
1: And those roots being field biology,
0: field biology, and uh, management of animals for hunting. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, hunting is such an important part of the conservation model of North America, that uh, it's, uh, we need to maintain a pretty strong focus on that. And especially uh, hunting on public lands. I think those two things, uh, the idea that everyone can participate in hunting and that there are large areas of public land on which to hunt, I think those two things are really important.
1: And we have done a really good job as a nation, especially compared to the rest of the world, about maintaining a a large amount of public land. And there is a huge amount of public land. There's public land that, you know, doesn't ever see people anymore. Yeah. And uh, I think that that's fantastic. One thing that that is going on within hunting right now, and it, it feels like a fad to me, is a bent towards extreme backcountry. And a lot of people will look at a map and they'll find their most remote place they can possibly get to. And that's where they go. There, there's a lot of access to recreation and to wildlife in, in the front country and in, and in country that isn't especially deep. I really think that we need to keep some sanctuaries and some refuges. And we don't necessarily have to exploit every nook and cranny of this public land that is available And I I want to get away from other hunters as much as the next guy. And that's important to me. One, for my experience and two, for my success. Because when there's less competition, it makes hunting easier. But I I want to encourage folks to to think about the front country a little bit more and to not necessarily exploit every possible piece of ground that they can find.
0: Well, I actually don't think we need to worry too much about exploiting every possible piece of ground because uh from what i can tell hunters are less and less willing to walk and put in hard physical effort to get places and Interesting. so i've drawn permits uh pretty prestigious permits it's taken me years to draw them and i get out there and hunt places where you have to walk and i run into no other people yeah where you know everyone else is motorized i 'm the only one walking, yeah, so and you
1: don't have to walk all that far to get away from folks no, you don't um <sighs> if i I tell people that you know if you 've walked two miles down a trail and a quarter mile off the trail you're you're probably going to be yeah. all on your own, yeah, and there's going to be horse dudes that that won't stop until they 've gone six miles, period, they won't yeah. do it, yeah, and there's a zone there that that is really yeah. left available to you. But you know, say it's an it's an elk and there's four big heavy loads of meat to bring off that yeah. animal. If you shoot that son of a gun two miles deep, yeah. you've got a lot of heavy mile hiking right. to get out. If you shoot him 10 miles deep, you're going to waste meat.
0: Well, you're giving me some good pointers because I'm still working on getting my first big bull elk. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I need to look at the front country a little closer, yeah, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> I,
1: I encourage people to hunt the front. You know, that's, that's pretty good habitat. It tends to be the edge, too, and edge habitat's pretty yeah. critical. What are your thoughts on edge habitat? Well, you mean... Uh, Hunting edge habitat or yeah. the
0: importance of elk edge habitat to wildlife um, the importance to, to wildlife specifically yeah. yeah well i you know i'm i'm a relative newcomer to this country down here around Oregon, you know where we 're talking today, uh, but in all of my training in wildlife biology, the emphasis has always been on edge habitat and uh, the prob- some problems I see down here is uh, There's a lot of good public land uh, in the mountains, but a lot of the edge habitat and the winter range is privately owned. Mm -hmm. So the relationship between wildlife managers and ranchers is really important. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's pretty critical.
1: And that relationship is tenuous as well.
0: It is. There's a tremendous amount of turnover of public land, too, yeah. and that, uh, that creates big problems. And uh, when you look at the estimates of what proportion of private ranch lands are going to change hands over the next 50 years, it's, uh, it's a high proportion. Yeah, Ranches And the are tendency old. is to break them up in smaller and smaller
1: pieces, and uh, that's never a good thing. Yeah. One of the real struggles with that is, uh, is inheritance tax. You know, it's right. so extremely high that if you have a generational ranch like this one that we're on here, for example, every time that that ranch passes down to the next generation, there's a huge inheritance tax that, that yeah. occurs and people can't afford that. So they yeah. end up having to sell part of the ranch and it breaks it into right. smaller and smaller pieces and the, you're constantly going to lose habitat and access for wildlife if you do that. But getting back to Maine, we went from New York to Maine, right? Yeah, that's right. Then what happened? Well,
0: I did my bachelor's degree in wildlife management at University of Maine. You know, once I realized there was a degree called wildlife management and, uh, it was a a very traditional management program. We manned check stations, uh, that was a required of all undergraduates. You had to go sit along the road and talk to hunters coming in with their deer and whatnot. And, uh. Uh, moose were becoming uh, a major topic i one of the first uh special projects i did was uh, analyzing the first moose census really ever done in maine wow and that was uh flown by aerial surveys of uh, systematic transects and then uh coming up with uh the number of moose and uh, dealing with some of the old traditional biologists who'd never done anything like that before and i remember uh coming up with my estimate which was something like uh 2.1 moose per square mile and this uh, old biologist looked me in the eye and and he said uh, absolutely dead pen, how can you have a tenth of a moose
2: <laughs> what does a tenth of a moose look
0: like and uh, i didn't realize at the time but he was a big jokester so yeah. he was just uh Trying to test this young guy, you know, nice. to see how he would answer questions like that. So
1: nice. <laughs> That's quite a
0: few moose. It was quite a few moose, and uh, may the moose in Maine were doing very well. It was before brainworm uh, had a major effect on them, uh, and they were talking about having a hunting season, and it was extremely controversial, hmm. and it remained controversial for 10 or 20 years. Uh, and then eventually the controversy died away, and the moose hunt in Maine is kind of a mainstream thing that goes on year after year now. and that taught me something about controversies uh, with wildlife is when you think a controversy is going to go on forever and ever, and a good example is the wolf controversy both in Alaska and the western states. Uh, you realize that over a long enough period of time it will morph and change and and settle down, and, uh, you know, there'll be some accommodation. That certainly happened already in Alaska with predator management. So anyway, yeah, that was four years at the University of Maine, and then uh, I met my girlfriend at the time, who's my wife now. She was a year ahead of me at the University of Maine, and she she had fantastic grades, and she got accepted uh, at all the graduate schools that she applied to. <laughs> And the one she decided to go to was Alaska. And uh, so when it came my turn, I wanted to go to graduate school too. I wasn't happy with just a bachelor's degree. So I applied to the University of Alaska and they looked at my grades and basically said, You must be joking. Uh, so I applied, I think I applied to five grad schools and I. Got accepted at uh, Brigham Young University, and that was the only one to, to work on birds of prey. But
1: okay, so the Mormons had lower standards than the Alaskans.
0: Well, Brigham Young had more openings. I will say that, <laughs> and I don't know that they had lower standards, but they had they had more openings and less applicants. Yeah, and so I was pretty excited about working on uh, birds of prey. That oh yeah, would have been the Snake River and. I love birds of prey. I was prepared to do that. And then uh, my the, my girlfriend, Audrey, offered me a job as her field assistant in Alaska. Oh, cool. So I left Maine and went to Alaska. And uh, Alaska was such an interesting, fun place. At the end of three months living up there, there was no way I was leaving. So yeah. I called a guy at the University of, or Brigham Young University, and I said, uh, I'm sorry, but I'm not coming. Yeah. And he said, well, do you have a job? And I said, nope, I don't have a job. And he said, well, you know, how are you going to make a living up there? And I said, well, I have no idea, but I'm going to try. Yeah. And so I stayed. And you had learned how to fly airplanes while you are in Maine. I had learned, uh, yeah. my uh, Audrey and I were walking down the hall at the University of Maine, and we saw an ad on the bulletin board that said, uh, learn to fly, join the University Flying Club. And I turned to Audrey, and I said Hey, that sounds like fun let 's do that and uh And we did, and we both ended up learning to fly and at that time the that was a Cessna one fifty and it was five dollars an hour. Wow, and the instructor was seven fifty an hour, which we thought was absolutely outrageous <laughs> <laughs> and uh so I took the ten dollars a week and put it into flying lessons so that I'd spent that money on downhill skiing and I kind of mm. thought, well, you know as a a a long-term career learning experience. Uh, Learning to fly seems like a lot more practical than downhill skiing. So I I switched my interest there. And it it took me a year because I couldn't even afford one flying lesson a week. And so at the end of the year, it looked like I wasn't quite going to make it. So I called my dad up and I said, well, how can you lend me uh, $250 so I can finish my flying lessons? And so that's how I finished my flying lessons. Wow. So I came to Alaska with uh, 85 hours and a private license. And uh, I let anybody know that uh, I joined the flying club there, let anybody know that uh, I would fly them anywhere they wanted to go if they would split the expenses. And there were... A lot of students who were dumb enough to do that. (laughs) They didn't ask how experienced I was or how... They didn't even care. They just thought that this would be great if I could fly them someplace.
1: So would the today version of you fly with the then version of you?
0: Uh, Well, you know, I don't even think about it that way. Uh, It's... the, The thing about flying, and especially practical flying like you do in Alaska... You have to push the envelope just enough so that you keep learning fairly quickly, but you have to be cautious enough not to kill yourself, and that's a, a balancing act. And that continues throughout your whole flying career. So it's you're starting at a much lower level of experience, of course, and so you have to be more cautious about where you go and what you do, and typically... When you're new at flying, you don't have uh access to all the fancy airplanes you know modern super cubs that are all tricked out to to land uh off off airport all kinds of places, so
1: you just have to make do with what you have and learn along the way well the problem with uh with pushing the envelope as a as a young man is you don't really know where the edge of that envelope is that's right uh yep, and you know
0: some people learn the hard way, yeah. Or, or stop
1: learning. And, and a lot of people continue to, well, to put it politely, to learn the hard way. But being a biologist, um, especially in a place like Alaska, fairly hazardous. There's a lot of biologists that, that die in, in aviation accidents. Well, that, that was true. It's no longer true today.
0: Uh, and uh, the, the difference is the equipment is much better now. Uh, the knowledge about what can kill you is much better, mm-hmm. and that knowledge is passed on more effectively. Yeah. So the culture is different. You know, there used to be the bush pilot culture where anything goes, you know, uh, getting the job done was the most important thing. Yeah, if it fits, uh, it ships kind of so, deal. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's really changed, but, you know, that was uh, one of the fortunate things was just as I started my career, they realized how hazardous flying and boating was in Alaska. There were as many people killed in boats as they were in airplanes. Oh, really? And the fisheries divisions had some disastrous years where they had people die in boat fires and drownings, and, you know, then there were people killed in airplane crashes. So they rolled us into the police and firemen's retirement system which is a 20-year retirement system, and uh, it was very
1: generous, and so I had the benefit of that. Uh, okay, so Alaska, the state of Alaska is still paying for your flight hours today a little bit? Well, I,
0: when I retired from the Department of Fish and Game in 2003, I started a flying business, and I specialized in wildlife survey flying. Okay. Uh, and so that's radio tracking, moose surveys, caribou surveys, uh... Yeah, any, you know, I just came back from the Seward Peninsula where I just did a bear survey as a contractor for the Department of Fishing Game. And uh, I, the job after that was uh, radio tracking caribou up on the North Slope. And then in November, I typically spend most of the month of November flying moose surveys
1: all over the interior. Got it. Well, let's get in the, in the way back machine. And since we're talking about the Seward Peninsula, um. Talk to me about Beringia. Well, you know, I'm not a, a real
0: expert on Beringia, but uh, it, it, what, what happened in Beringia affected Alaska and still. What, what was it, for those who don't know? Well, it, what it was when um, the climate was cold enough that two major ice sheets formed in North America the continental ice sheet and the Cordilleran ice sheet. And the Cordilleran and ice sheet cut Alaska off from the rest of North America. So Alaskan wildlife evolved when the Bering Land Bridge existed. And so it was connected with Asia. So until 10,000 years ago, Alaska was connected with Asia. And that's why a lot of the animals in Alaska today are very similar to the animals in the Russian Far East.
1: And there was another big ice sheet... On the Asian side, effectively creating an an island of habitable land, which was Alaska and the the Bering Strait, which is now underwater. Yeah, and that's what we refer to as Beringia, is this this right. ancient piece of land, right. some of which is yeah. is exposed and some of which yeah, is and
0: there's very interesting leftovers. Uh, you know, one particularly with elk is as you are probably well aware when you as as you uh, elk in. Uh, eastern part of Asia are very similar to Wapiti in North America and more different from red deer in the western part of Asia. And, you know, some of those similarities with wolves, the Far East Russian wolves are very similar to the wolves that occur in Alaska today uh, that moved in probably 10,000 years ago or a little bit more and then have worked their way down encountering the previous invasions of wolves in North America, which were smaller animals. Um, and then moose, kind of similar with moose. Moose in the Russian Far East are very similar to Alaskan moose. They have big bodies and great big antlers. And so, yeah, there's, there's similarities with sheep. The mm-hmm. snow sheep in in uh, eastern part of Russia and Kamchatka are More similar to doll sheep than any other sheep. There are differences there, uh, but
1: but they're pretty similar. Gotcha. Another thing that that I've recently learned that I didn't know about growing up is that there was this time period where all these animals and these people moved out of Asia and moved into Beringia, but then they were blocked by ice behind them and ice in front of them. So there was like a 15,000-year period where the only hominids in North America were stuck in Beringia. Yeah. And if you look at other continents, they all have these ancient civilizations that that were built up. North and South America do not have those. You know, the closest thing we have is is the the Mayan civilization which, you know, hit its peak like 400 AD. So, we're we're all relatively new here. Yeah. And and part of it is because we got stuck in Alaska for a long yeah. time. Yeah so the moose we have today um were there moose that were also you know south of these big ice sheets in North America yeah and then is that what you know later became the shyrus moose Cyrus moose and the Canadian moose okay yeah so this this ice sheet split those up and then the moose that we have um in the in the Yukon the Yukon moose um what which what is their Latin name uh that's Alcy's Alcy's Jagus, okay is the, yeah, okay, the big moose, so and that's the moose that you spent the most time with was the jagus yeah. moose, yeah that's okay,, right. yeah. got it well tell me tell me more about how that happened um and and why didn't that moose um come all the way down british columbia and and follow the migration that other species took, and you know why don't we have Jagus moose? Here in the lower forty eight well
0: i don 't really know, and you know uh, that's that 's a good question uh, The same question applies to wolves why didn 't this big wolf completely invade all of north america and it didn 't it was moving slowly south but it didn't uh, it didn 't even get into the lower forty eight states and it didn 't get very much past alberta mm. uh, so yeah there's uh you know you'd think ten thousand years would be long enough time for some of these big Beringian origin animals to to invade all of North America, but they didn't uh, so I don't really know you know I don't think anybody really knows why what the what the uh,
1: barriers to dispersal were once the ice sheets retreated what's the phenomenon called where animals tend to get uh, larger as they get away from the equator well that's
0: Bergman's rule okay and Bergman's rule is one of those rules that taught to beginning wildlife biologists. But the more you uh, are around animals and uh, experience with them and everything, you realize that there are so many exceptions to Bergman's rule that it really shouldn't be called a rule. Because, uh, you know, there it, it's generally true in some ways, but there are so many exceptions to it. And I'm not sure that bergman's rule is the reason why moose are so big
1: okay uh, but that that could be you know if if we were to to subscribe to that that could be part of why you know we have big moose and big wolves in, in yeah. northern latitudes and not in the southern latitudes yeah
0: it it could be It could have something to do with it you know the the idea is that uh in cold places you need a bigger body to stay warm
1: Yep. Surface area to mass ratio. That's right. Yeah. 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 That's, that's my approach too, by the way, you know, I want to make myself as big as possible so that I don't get cold. (laughs) Yeah. doesn't work out too well this time of year. No, no, you do fine in Alaska. (laughs) Well, I intend to, because I'm, I'm going to go hunt for moose on the Alaska peninsula this year and I'm incredibly excited about it and I'm trying to learn everything that I can. Okay, so from 10,000 years, you know, we speed up to when you show up in Alaska. And when did you start working with moose? Well, I started working with moose uh,
0: in the late 1970s my focus was on caribou so I was a caribou biologist that was my main job for 30 years
1: did you focus on one particular herd or did you work across the state
0: well I focused on the delta caribou herd which is south of Fairbanks which was our long-term research program and uh, I just wrote uh, a book about that it's a very technical book uh, four years ago um and it's called uh, Monitoring Caribou Herds in Alaska with Focus on the Delta Caribou Herd. And it is available on the Alaska Department of Fish and Game website. Nice. I like books with titles like that. So, yeah. It's, lots of tables, lots of charts. It's, you, you, if you like tables and charts, uh, you will love this book. <laughs> I imagine there's some good pictures in there, too, though. <laughs> I have a few pictures in the back. I didn't really focus on pictures. And okay. I discovered, unfortunately, uh, towards the end of my career, that I hadn't taken nearly
1: enough pictures nobody ever does no that's right no it's it's hard when you're in the moment because you want to just kind of like be in the moment and be doing the thing but uh when you look back it's like maybe i should have taken some time to yeah out of camera for a second
0: yeah and people don't have as much of an excuse now as they did before because they almost have their iphones with them and the modern iphones have really good cameras and you
1: know they're not as good as professional grade cameras but they're pretty good have you noticed that uh, UFO sightings have dropped off significantly since everybody started having a camera with them all the time? <laughs> no, I hadn't noticed that, uh-huh. James. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, you could probably make the same argument for the Sasquatch,
1: too. I think so. And I'm, I was so scared of Sasquatch growing up. Oh, I was afraid of it. And all these loggers yeah. had Sasquatch stories, yeah. and I trusted these guys. Um, but, you know, thanks to game cameras... I feel pretty yeah. safe. I feel yeah. pretty safe in the woods. Yeah. I don't know that there's uh, that many Sasquatch running around. No, no. Did you ever see Sasquatch in Alaska? No, I have never
0: personally seen a Sasquatch, and uh, I have friends who absolutely believe that they exist. Uh huh. And I just don't know what to tell them. Yep. I, I, they asked me if I believe in one. I said, well, I have an open mind. If I see a dead one, uh, or a Several good pictures of one or uh, some Sasquatch droppings. If you can convince me they're not bear droppings. Yeah, I i have an open mind. Yeah, Skeptical optimist. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think that's a good way to handle Sasquatch. Okay. So tell me more about the Delta caribou herd. Well, it uh, it, it was a small caribou herd
0: uh, south of Fairbanks. Now it numbers about 3,000. It, it has gone up as high as uh, 10,000. But, and the, the reason we started studying it and, and putting so much intensive focus on it was because all of the caribou herds in Alaska declined drastically in the 1970s. Uh, and that was kind of the backdrop to when I arrived in Alaska. There had been two killer winters, hmm. the winter of 70-71 and 71-72, uh, and those win- those winters affected wildlife in Alaska statewide. What does a bad winter in Alaska look like? It tends to be long, deep snow. Okay. Deep snow that comes early and lingers
1: late into the springtime. And spring snow is especially hazardous because that's when it can develop a crust that is so... It's,
0: it's not so much a crust in Alaska. It's just... Uh, Debilitating. Okay. Uh, animals waved through it for it. months and they yeah. flounder around. They just can't get enough energy to overcome that. You know, in some parts of the state, uh, snow conditions like crusted snow uh, or when you get uh, a, an early thaw and then you get a real hard freeze uh, where that doesn't support moose but it does
1: support wolves yeah. can result in, uh, you know, high mortality of moose. And I guess I'm speaking from my own experience here is if we have a long winter and then we get a crusty snow in the spring that's still deep, uh, the deer and elk don't stand a chance. Yeah. And, you know, everything can very efficiently just walk up on them and kill them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And winter affects... Different animals, and th- these two winters affected different animals in different ways. You know, deer were annihilated in large areas of southeast Alaska by those two winters. Yep. In fact, they were, some areas where the hunting season were closed for 18 years before they were reopened. And uh, biologists even thought about reintroducing deer to some areas. But in that situation, deer tend to come down to the beach uh, and if they don't come down to the beach, they're in such deep snow that they're very vulnerable to wolf predation. So the islands that have wolves, uh, deer don't do very well in deep snow winters, and it takes them a long time to recover. The islands, uh, there are islands in southeast Alaska that don't have wolves, and they have periodically very deep snow. But uh, they, those deer populations recover very quickly.
1: The uh, the deer on Kodiak were having a very bad year uh, last last fall, and the previous winter was pretty tough on them, especially on the on the side of the island that has the road system. And we really struggled to turn up deer. We were there mountain goat hunting, but picked up some blacktail tags as well. And uh, I think I only saw one buck. Wow. You know, the yeah. whole time that I was there. But on the on the other side of the island, I think that they did quite a lot better. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk moose. You want to talk about moose? Yeah. I want to talk about moose. Okay, let's talk about moose. What can you tell me about moose? What do people get wrong about moose? Well, I don't know what they get wrong necessarily
0: about moose, but if you're talking about moose, particularly moose in Alaska and the Yukon, uh, one of the very interesting things is that a big record book, number one Boone and Crockett moose, can come from virtually anywhere. Really, that's not true for animals like sheep or deer or caribou. Uh, You can predict pretty much where big deer and big caribou, uh, you can predict where big bears are going to come from. But with moose, big moose can come from anywhere. Uh, And there have been some really interesting uh, stories about big moose. Uh, A few years ago, there was a guy in the Yukon, lived in Dawson and he went out to shoot a, a meat moose with his 303 British and uh, he shot the moose and he had friends tell him, you know, that's a big moose, you should have that measured and after a couple of years he decided to have it measured it was the new world's record. Wow. And then uh with a 303 British. Yeah, the wow. good old 303. Hmm. And then uh, a year after that, a similar story in southwest Alaska, where moose are doing exceptionally well right now. A uh, guy went out to get a, uh, a meat moose. Uh, it turned out to be the New World's Record. Wow. But uh, I have heard of, uh, over the years, New World's Record moose have come from uh, the 40-mile country in east-central Alaska. Yeah. They've come from the uh, Anasak River on the Noatak, uh, they've come from the Alaska Peninsula. They've come from the Cordova area. Uh, the only place you're not going to get big moose is uh, the the smaller subspecies that occur in some of the areas in southeast Alaska. They're just inherently small moose, more similar to the Canadian moose. Okay. But moose, uh, w- one of the interesting, you know, we started talking a bit about history in Beringia, but... Uh, more some of the more recent history over the last few hundred years is the Little Ice Age probably affected animals quite a lot in Alaska and northern Canada as well. And the Little Ice Age was over in the late 1800s, uh, and moose were essentially wiped out of large parts of Alaska, uh, you know, during that period of time. Uh, and you you can look at the archaeological record and find blank spots where moose were not present. Uh, Caribou were present all throughout Alaska's archaeological history, going back, you know, 10,000 years and longer. Um, But moose were not. And so uh, the old-timers were still telling stories, and even some, some of the old guys today telling stories about how moose were not present. Uh, in large parts of Alaska when they were growing up in the 20s and 30s. It wasn't until the 40s and 50s that moose started expanding into some of the areas that we think that they are, you know, have always been moose today. And uh, the Seward Peninsula is one of those. Moose are a recent arrival on the Seward Peninsula. They're a recent arrival on the North Slope. There was not a breeding population of moose on the North Slope until the 1950s. And they weren't really, uh, abundant until the 1970s. And then they reached, uh, high, you know, pretty high numbers in the, along the Colville River until the 1990s. And then they started declining and now they've been do you know, good years and bad years since then. There's, they're into a second decline now. But, uh, I had older native guys told me that, uh, you know, in the Kayakuk country and the middle Yukon that, uh, in the old days in the 30s if a family found a moose track they would get in that moose track and follow it until they killed the moose and they would camp on the moose carcass until they were done with it and then they would move on
1: so which is how the 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 mainers back there um treat deer yeah you know which is uh I hunted Maine last winter and kind of did the, the walk them down, track them in the snow thing. Yeah. Except we didn't have much in the way of snow, so it made it especially yeah. challenging. Yeah. But yeah, that's definitely a, a real dogged approach to hunting, and and also probably not the way that people historically hunted moose. Um, you know, prior to that mini ice age that you were talking about. Yeah at least based on literature, it seems like they did a lot of snaring um, to, to try and slow those moose down and, and fix them in one spot or they would harpoon them out of boats quite a bit. Um, yeah, huh. Which, uh, you know, there's some really interesting uh, lithographs and, and graphic representations of, of natives, you know, going along moose in a canoe and, and spearing them. Yeah, huh. And the spear, it sounds like, was much more common than the bow and arrow as as far as actually being effective against the moose yeah but if you replace this moose with a whale um you know it's it's so similar in in the way that we treated that that animal is pretty similar too at least in terms of of how natives treated them yeah but fascinating stuff you
0: know what one of the other things i think about with moose in alaska too is uh how they have changed people's view of meat yeah and uh in southwest alaska Moose were absent, like mm-hmm. in many other th- parts of Alaska that I described. Uh, and I'm talking the area around uh, Dillingham, King Salmon, and, and west of there. Uh, that was brown bear country. There were no moose, and there were very few caribou. And so people ate brown bears. That was their source of red meat. They've ha- always had lots of fish. So so fish and brown bears, that was, that was uh, what you ate. And then... Uh, Moose arrived in the 50s. And I would say by the late 70s, very few people ate brown bears anymore. And now today, you can hardly find anyone who would even consider brown bears food. Brown bear are, rather than being a food animal today, they're considered a nuisance animal. Right. They, and uh, if you don't shoot at a brown bear, every brown bear you see, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> if you made the make the mistake of admitting to someone that you saw a brown bear and you did not shoot at it, they will get mad at you. Really? So it's uh the arrival of moose has completely changed people's attitudes towards brown bears in Southwest Alaska.
1: And I I consistently hear people tell me that moose is their favorite meat. Yeah. I yeah. have never ever ever Heard somebody say that brown bear is their favorite meat. No, that's right. Yeah. Uh, Barely edible is what people tell me.
0: My, uh, I've been involved in various predator control programs. Two of them included bears. One where we removed the bears. We moved them physically. Loaded them in the department beaver and flew them 200 miles and dropped them. You know, <laughs> gave them a one way ride. I bet you'd
1: want the right kind of drugs if you've got a bear in the back of an airplane. Well, you
0: do, you know, and the drugs are pretty good. But the problem we had is uh, the drug manufacturers didn't anticipate Alaska ordering so much telazole at one time. And so there became a, a North America wide shortage of telazole after we were running this program. <laughs> And so, you ever have one wake up when you're flying? No, somewhere? we never had one wake up. Um, uh, we were prepared, you know, yeah. we 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 carried sidearms, reach behind you and stab him with another well, dart. We, <laughs> had, had, we had we had uh, syringes loaded, yeah, uh, yeah. But we you know, we had some nerve wracking times. We had them lightly dosed, and they'd be growling in the back of the airplane. <laughs> <and> stuff, so, <laughs> but that program was uh very successful. Uh, another program. That uh, we all thought was going to be quite controversial. When it it turned out uh, how how well this program at McGrath worked uh, back in early 2000s, people further down the Cusquim River wanted a similar program because they'd been having a lot of trouble with low moose numbers and you know, season had been closed for a long time, and they really relied on moose there. Salmon runs were way down, and so they were you know they didn't really have much alternative. So in that program the department uh, i was not working then i was hired as a contractor to come back and fly the beaver to to distribute the meat instead of distributing live bears around the country i was distributing the meat from dead bears up and down the river and uh, we removed about 130 bears Uh, most of them were black bears there were a few grizzlies and we asked people up and down the Kuskowim if they would be willing to accept this grizzly bear meat, and and uh, only one person would. Uh, everyone else considered the meat of grizzly bears dog suitable for dog food, but not suitable for human food. Interesting. And there's the the one exception uh, we ran into. There was an old miner. He had lived on the Seward Peninsula, and uh, he lived uh, down at. Uh, village of Red Devil on the Cusquim, and yeah. he, uh, he said, uh, we asked him about bear meat, and he said, well, I'll, I'll take some black bear meat, and I said, well, how about grizzly bear meat, and, and he said, well, you know, if you bring me grizzly bear ribs, I really like grizzly bear ribs, so we brought him about 400 pounds of grizzly bear ribs, <laughs> and he took, he took every bit. Really? Really? And uh, on the way back to our base camp, I, I said to the guy riding next to me, I said, hey, Roy, you know, this guy thinks grizzly bear ribs are so great. Maybe they are. Let's have some for camp meat. So the next grizzly bear we got, we had to cook, cook up the grizzly bear ribs. And I would have to say they're some of the best ribs I ever ate. So Is that right? I think, you know, uh, my impression is that almost everyone in Alaska is willing to try bear meat. But there's no one that I know of that's willing to eat a lot of bear meat. Yeah. And, uh, and most people I know, if they shoot a black bear for meat, and they have both black bear meat and moose meat in the freezer, when they go to choose a piece of meat for dinner that night, they're invariably going to pick the moose meat. Sure. And, Don't blame them. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of eating bear myself. And uh, I love bear fat. You know, we have tried at the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, we've tried to encourage people to eat more grizzly bear meat and save the meat. And it's actually required to bring the meat into the field in spring hunts. Mm-hmm. Um, before a certain date, right? Yeah, it's before a certain date. And that is because, uh, you know, when there's salmon runs going on in the fall and bears are eating salmon, it's pretty widely recognized that the meat's no good so you 're required to bring it in from the field you 're not required to eat it. you can 't okay. feed it to your dogs or you can even th- legally throw it away if you want to once you bring it in from the field. But I think o- over time, I think people are more and more people are uh, eating grizzly bear meat uh, and bear meat in general. but i don 't think uh, bear meat will ever replace moose meat as a valuable food animal in Alaska, even though there are probably far more bears in Alaska than there are moose. So
1: if a family is, uh, is living off moose meat for subsistence, how much moose are they actually eating in a year? It depends a lot of what other food they have
0: available. Okay. So if you're in areas where there are big salmon runs, I would guess, you know, from the statistics I've seen from the ADF&G subsistence division, uh, it's 50-50 red meat salmon. Uh, If you're living in a place like Anaktubic Pass where there are no salmon runs, caribou is what everybody wants. And that's one of the few places in the state where people don't think moose is a very good quality meat animal if they have a choice between caribou
1: and moose they'll take uh, they'll take the caribou every time as long as the caribou isn't in the rut
0: yeah yeah they avoid the rut and the the magic day in the, for those northern herds is about the 10th of october hmm. after the 10th of october people will not shoot big bull caribou they will shoot uh, cows uh, and then uh, sometime in the spring usually around february that, uh, that hormone taste, that, that smell that's associated with the rut, with caribou that does actually get into the meat, it's just not on the outside. That goes away and then it becomes the meat becomes palatable again.:
1: And I think it's and this is an unpopular opinion. I think it's the same way with, with Rocky Mountain Elk. If you shoot a big bull elk in the middle of the rut during archery season, that is not a good quality meat. Okay, it's just not. Yeah, and it it's such a good quality experience, the hunt itself. That I think people yeah. trick themselves into thinking that it's good. But we have some cow elk hunts that start on August first. That meat is incredible. Yeah, and huh. and then some of the like October November um, time frame for elk, again young bulls or cows especially uh, when they can start. Turning towards some of that leafy and woody debris that's really high in protein, um, and then mixing that with the dead grass to get their fiber. That meat is very good, but yeah. a rutting elk is is not good, especially a rutting older bull, which you know is what most people tend to go after with archery tackle. Yeah. It, I'll I'll take a pass on that. You know, I'd yeah. I'd rather shoot a, a younger animal or a cow if if I'm going for meat okay well
0: i i i put in this year for elk i didn't get drawn but uh <laughs> i am in mean, will be hunting at the uh, end of october so yeah, okay is my meat quality going to be good at the end of october are you shooting a bull or a cow i'm going to shoot a big bull you going shoot a big bull i, I want
1: one, i want to get one big bull in my yeah. lifetime well i think that that will be a great experience for you um i hope you you shatter the the world record and uh you know, if you want some good meat after that, I'll sell you some beef. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, um, okay. What is a year a, a year in a moose's life? What does that look like? Okay. Well, uh, it depends
0: if you're a bull moose or cow moose. Well, let's talk about them both. Well, all right. Let's start and talk about cow moose because especially in a place like Alaska uh, – a year in a cow moose's life can be pretty traumatic, uh, but let's start. Uh, we'll start with a rut in September. Okay. Uh, about what date is well? Does is that there, peak or start? I would say pre-rut starts like the tenth of September. Okay. And then uh, the the switch goes on about the twentieth of September. Okay. So uh, that's when cow moose really start calling mm-hmm. a lot. Uh, and that's when bull moose start really responding to those cow calls. Uh, incidentally, it's, it's, when you're moose hunting, it's good to cow call any time, especially if you're in the forest okay. and you're making a little bit of noise because uh, if you're in the forest and you're making a little bit of noise, the moose are going to hear that. They have excellent hearing. And mm. if you cow call occasionally, you might fool them into thinking that you are a, a moose instead of a human. What's a cow call sound like? Well, that's that very nasal call.
1: That was really good. You've practiced that before. I have. I've practiced
0: that before, and it is fantastically effective (laughs) on young bull moose. Okay. On young, stupid bull moose (laughs) that don't have any cows with them. It is so effective, it's hard not to laugh when you see them react to it. Really? You can see them walking along, and you can make the most atrocious-sounding cow call, (laughs) and they will turn 90 degrees and come straight for it. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sounds exciting. Where you try that with big bull moose that have cows around, and they pay almost no attention sure. to it because yeah. you know why? Did, why do they want to leave six cows to go where there's one cow? Yeah, it's so, like
1: leaving the beach
0: to find a bucket right, of sand. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so getting back to the year in the life of the moose, uh, you know the the ruts. There's a lot of activity then. The, the cows. Kind of act like they're not all that interested, like a lot of female animals during the rut, the breeding season. Uh, the males are the ones that that seem to be most active and interested in it. But you know, it's kind of a two-part thing. But then uh, that when that the rut is over, uh, the mid mid to late October, unless uh, for some reason the cow doesn't get bred on the first estrus, that can be a second estrus in late October, early November. Um, and then the bulls generally leave, uh, and in November, bulls go to post-rut concentration areas where you can see these phenomenally high bull-cow ratios, and then the cows often are, are other places. And then they go through the winter. They start the winter, you know, eating willow browse. Willow is uh, by far the most uh, important food for moose uh, particularly cow moose in the wintertime. Uh, in a lot of areas where there's no willow, they'll eat a lot of birch.
1: Is that is the anti-inflammatory quality of willow important?
0: Yeah. it's Willow is not very well defended. It doesn't have secondary compounds uh, like birch and other, all, alder particularly, you know, is heavily defended, naturally defended. Uh, so yeah willow is willow is not very well defended it's highly palatable all mm-hmm. year. They strip the leaves in the summertime and uh and then uh, you know munch the twigs in in the winter time. Uh, but the thing about moose is we don't know of any examples of moose in Alaska that that can gain weight over the winter, mm. so they are slowly losing weight over the winter and there are big differences between bull moose and cow moose, and I'll I'll talk about that uh, when I talk about bulls. But So cows are gradually losing weight over the winter. Um, they're almost all pregnant. Pregnancy rates are typically very high, okay. no, no matter what the bull-cow ratio is. Even if the bull-cow ratio is 10 per 100, that seems to be plenty enough to get all the breeding done. Does a uh, does cow want to get bred by multiple bulls? Well, I don't know that. <laughs> Uh, and I don't really know if anybody knows that. That's probably still one of the mysteries of moose
1: rutting behavior. Uh, a cow elk does. Okay. Yeah. 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 So she'll get bred by the herd bull first. Huh. And as soon as that happens, cause her heat cycle is only like 17 hours long. Yeah. And as soon as that happens, she's trying to leave and get bred by some of those satellite bulls. Um, And that's why a bull elk will so aggressively try and keep his harem together.
0: Yeah. I actually don't know how long the receptive period is for a cow moose. It's probably not very long. Yeah. Um, But yeah, some of those questions I
1: I think still remain to be answered with with moose. Yeah. Well, maybe some of these uh, up-and-coming biologists who live in, in spreadsheets can figure that out for us. Yeah, maybe they can. Yeah. <laughs> well, and with the
0: new genetic
1: techniques, they might be able to start figuring yeah, some of that out that'd as be well. Fun. Yeah. Get some RFID chips in these yeah. moose, and yeah. yeah, yeah. Now we're talking. Okay. Well, so. in the
0: in the springtime, you know, as as winter comes to an end, uh, depending on how severe the winter is and everything, it's uh, moose cow moose typically. No matter how bad the winter is, they will not lose their calf. If they are pregnant in October, they will carry that, that calf to term. And if it's been a very, very bad winter, that calf will be underweight. Yep. Uh, and then the problem is predation. You tend to get high mortality of those underweight calves. But predation is the next huge obstacle that cow moose face. Uh, You know they face it a little bit with wolf predation over the winter. If if the moose is under two years old or over about eight years old, they're vulnerable to wolf predation. If they happen to be lucky enough and they're in that middle part of their life where they're between two and eight, they almost don't get preyed on by wolves. They're they're tough enough and uh, they're just not really vulnerable so their mortality rate from wolf predation over the winter is very low as far as the adults are
1: concerned yeah Yeah.
0: these are the adults but the whole picture changes completely as soon as the calves are born and uh, throughout most of alaska uh, where bears are present particularly grizzly bears but it applies to both black bears and grizzly bears most calf moose that are born in alaska are killed by bears Okay. And uh, it's a majority, it's it's a vast majority of the calf moose in Alaska that are born every year are killed by bears. And it can be black bears alone or it's combination or just grizzly bears. But that was one of the uh, epiphanies that wildlife biologists had with the advent of radio callers in the late 1970s, uh, once we were able to put radio collars on calf moose, and we found how devastating predation by bears was on calf moose, you know, that answered the question about why are some of these moose populations not doing so well. So, why do you end up with low calf numbers in the fall? People blamed, traditionally blamed wolves for that, and it turned right. out to be wrong. Wolves right. were not the main cause of, of calf mortality.
1: So one of the best things that you could do if you want to help a struggling moose population is kill some bears. Yeah,
0: but you have to kill enough bears to make a difference, and that is a very difficult thing to do. We've tried that in multiple programs in Alaska, and I'm still not aware of any example of where biologists have been able to reduce bear numbers through sport harvest. Hmm. And... One of the things that goes on there is that uh, bears, bears learn, and they're pretty secretive. And if you shoot at a bear and miss the bear, uh, the bear will learn. Uh, and bears become nocturnal when they're hunted. And in no case has anybody ever allowed the hunting of sows with cubs. So sows with cubs are protected. And as long as you protect sows with cubs... It seems that, in, at least in Alaska, with the access the way it is, there's no way you can reduce bare numbers. You can have a, a year-round season, uh, an unlimited bag limit, uh, and you are still not going to reduce bear numbers. And if somebody had told me that 15, 20 years ago, I would not have believed it. But uh, more recently, you know, we've had... Programs where we've deliberately tried to reduce bear numbers. That includes baiting of grizzly bears. You know, bait, baiting grizzly bears has been legalized. Uh, trapping grizzly bears has been legalized. Trapping of all bears has been legalized, except for sows with cubs. And even in those cases where we've had baiting and trapping in year round seasons, multiple bag limits, and legalized the sale of bear
1: hides, uh, it has still not reduced bear numbers. And we're not going to unleash hunters to shoot sows with cubs because it's not socially palatable.
0: That's right. And uh, there's actually a funny story about that in Alaska. Back in the 1960s, uh, there was a proposal that went before the Board of Game to legalize the taking of sows and cubs. And it passed. And it went down to Juneau to be promulgated into a regulation and there was a secretary who was in charge of writing that all up and publishing it and she thought that that was so bad that she refused to write it up and put it into a regulation and so even though the board of game passed it 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 was never made into a regulation because of the action of that one woman and no one had the guts to call her out on that and make a big deal out of it, and the whole issue died. <laughs> That's
2: oh, one of the little-known
0: trivial facts of Alaska Fish and Game history. Yeah, charismatic megafauna. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I can understand it. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. it's a heart-wrenching uh, subject, you know. Are, are you going to shoot a mother bear and watch the cubs starve to death, I think most people would not find that acceptable. There's a lot of bad things that happen to bear cubs. (laughs) There are. And that brings me to another reason why uh, it's so tough to reduce bear numbers. Uh, And that is the main source of mortality of bear cubs is being killed by male bears. Predation by male bears on cubs is far and away the most important cause of death of cubs. And so if you start hunting a bear population heavily, you end up taking out a lot of these big males and bear cubs survive better. So they have a natural mechanism to compensate by reproduction. And there have been two or three studies in Alaska that have pretty clearly demonstrated that in heavily hunted populations, there are more bear cubs produced and more bear cubs survive.
1: I've had this argument with, with black bear hunters in the lower 48, you know, often enough that I, that I know the drill, but a lot of black bear hunters down here will say, well, you know, the reason I hunt bears is, is because I'm concerned about the elk population, which, which is a justifiable thing to say, or they're concerned about mule deer, justifiable thing to say, but then they'll go out and they'll target boars. Yeah. Boys don't do this. Like. If you want to reduce the bear population, you need to target a sow because not, not talking about sows with cubs, that's illegal, not promoting that, but you know, there's, there's plenty of sows out there like shoot that sow. Um, That, that is a much better way to, to reduce a bear population than shooting boars. I fully agree with that. Yeah. Yeah,
0: anyway, so, so that's, the, that's the trauma. The trauma of the year for the cow moose is the springtime when she has her calves, she's trying to protect them from bears. And with black bears, if a cow has twins, invariably she's going to lose one of those twins. You know, they, they will defend their, their calves against black bears. Um, but the problem is when they run into a grizzly and they become too defensive, the grizzly will kill her and both the ca- both the, right. the calves. And, you know, in the McGrath study we did uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, we saw multiple cases of that where we had uh, collared cow moose and uh, we also had some collared bears and Uh, One case I saw, uh, one of these big male bears, it had a cow moose and both her twins in a pile and had killed them all and had a great big pile of debris and the bear was, the bear basically spent all his time either feeding or lying on the pile protecting it from other bears. And he stayed there for eight days and at the end of eight days he walked about a mile And he killed another cow moose and her calf and did the same thing over again. And so uh, one of the things about that fairly heavy predation by big male bears on cow moose is it doesn't show up in the ratio. So when biologists go to measure how well the moose population did in the fall, they're looking at the cow-calf ratio. But if the bear has killed both the numerator and the denominator, it doesn't show up at all. The only way you can detect that is over the long term uh, in moose numbers in the population. And Alaska is such a vast area that uh, there are very few places where we can accurately measure the size of a moose population. What's the age where escapement becomes more of a possibility for calf moose? It's about uh, a month. So, you know, most calves are born at the end of May, and by early July they're they're getting much safer and by the end of July they're really pretty safe from bear predation there's very little bear predation anymore after the end of July okay
1: okay um so by July a moose is sort of living on easy street and, yeah. and, and until the rut which brings us full circle yeah yeah and then you know
0: insects are are, are a problem too so mosquitoes uh, primarily mosquitoes mosquitoes uh, Black flies, white socks, you know, some areas. Horse flies. Throughout interior Alaska, there are huge numbers of horse flies. So sometimes you see moose in lakes and rivers, and they're not feeding on uh, lily pads and aquatic vegetation. They're just trying to get away from insects. Yeah. But that all dies down uh, quite a bit in August. And then, you know, in August and early September, that's the time they really – Putting a lot of fat uh, and and getting themselves in top condition, you know, for the start of the rut and the and uh, and and winter coming on. What's the worst that you ever saw mosquitoes? Well, uh, the worst I ever saw mosquitoes was probably the first year I spent in Alaska on the North Slope, uh, and that was they started to get bad about the twentieth of June. By the first of July you could not live without a head net. And it wasn't so much to prevent you from being bitten, it was prevent you from breathing them in all the time. Because without a head net, you're just constantly sucking in mosquitoes and coughing and you know sputtering and stuff. And so uh, you, we had a routine. Uh, the first four summers in Alaska, I spent in a tent. Uh, and that first summer, was unbelievably bad in the month of July. You just have to develop a routine where you you cook your breakfast outside the tent. You know, the stoves we had were not all that reliable, and we were always worried about burning the tent down. So mm-hmm. we cooked outside, and you'd have your – put your head net on, go outside the tent, cook breakfast, try to get the breakfast in without having too many mosquitoes dive into it uh, Mosquitoes love to dive headfirst into oatmeal. And then uh, we, would, we had a butterfly net with us. And once we were in the tent, we would use the butterfly net to catch all the mosquitoes <laughs> that were inside the tent and kill them. And, uh, and that was the routine. You, couldn't, you wouldn't leave your tent without first putting your head net on unless it was a windy day and you'd get some relief just from the wind. And that went on for a month. And at the end of a month, uh, I had developed all these little habitual movements, little ticks and shoulder <laughs> movements and, you know, just this constant reaction just to... suck drive sucked dry by these dogs. Yeah, bugs. right. So, oh, and you can imagine, you know, animals, caribou, are driven
1: crazy by... By huge numbers of, of mosquitoes did you ever see a herd of caribou just running for their lives from these yeah bugs?
0: well they they do they move they they do move and they they aggregate very tightly in these very tight groups to try to get some relief hmm. from mosquitoes
1: uh, sounds terrible it is terrible yeah it's it's terrible well let's talk about bull moose what are some of the differences in their well, the the biggest difference is,
0: uh, you know, when the rut comes, bull moose enter the rut really fat, and by the end of the rut, all their fat is gone, and that's typical for a lot of ungulates, yep. especially northern ungulates. I'm sure elk are the same way, you know, they Very start the so. rut really fat, and then by the end of September, they have no fat left. Yeah,
1: uh, a bull that starts the rut here, a big bull, you know, weighing 800 pounds, um, yeah. he'll be 700 pounds by yeah. the time yeah. October rolls around.
0: Yeah, moose are the same way. So, you know, it doesn't seem to be a very good strategy for them because they enter the winter in the poorest condition they've been in the whole year. So then they gradually, you know, try to regain a little bit condition, but they, they never successfully regain their body weight over the winter. Uh, and that's the other difference is uh, when the moose at the end of the rut that's the time when moose are most vulnerable to predation, where with cows, the time they're most vulnerable to predation is in the spring when they have their calves and they're trying to defend their calves. With bulls, they're so wrung out by the end of the rut that uh, that's when they're the most vulnerable to predation, both by wolves and grizzly bears. And that's a a big deal for a bear. You know, I've seen uh, two cases where Moose have locked horns during the rut, locked antlers in the rut, and then and died, and have been found by a grizzly bear, and all of a sudden this grizzly bear has this pile of, you know 1,500 pounds of protein before he goes into the den. And so uh, Good grizzly, living.
1: Good living for that bear. Yeah,
0: grizzly bears in October, November are on the lookout for these rut-wounded bull moose. Uh, and you know that's their bonus before they go into the den
1: huh Um, moose antler is an interesting tissue Uh, what what can you tell me about their antler growth and and how that occurs well it's uh you know
0: like like all of these uh antlered animals it's different depending on the age of the animal when they shed their antlers and when they start regrowing them but uh in Moose shed their velvet the last week of August and so by and it's over a fairly short period of time you go through a few days when you know you transition from velvet covered antlers to red antlers and then quickly into bush stained antlers and then uh, big bull moose start losing their antlers about the first of December. And that can be a problem for the moose composition counts that we do in November. Sure. If the the counts go too late, you start seeing one antlered moose, and then you start seeing adults that you're not sure whether the thing you're looking from an airplane, you're not sure if the thing is a cow or a bull. And so it affects the ratios and affects the quality of the surveys. But then, you know, by most of the bull moose have shed, the big bull moose have shed their antlers by the end of December, but the young bulls continue to keep their antlers all the way into as late as early April. Um, and, then, uh, and then they, you know, the young bull moose shed their, the last of the antlers go in April. And the big bull moose are already regrowing antlers in March. So even by early March, you can see, you know, three, four, five inches of uh, new velvet stubs on a, on a bull moose.
1: So they spend a long time, a bull does, between dropping antlers and starting to regrow again, right? That's interesting. Yeah, that's very very interesting. Elk, elk are short; it's it's a couple weeks. Yeah, you know, basically as soon as that pedicle heals, they're starting to grow again. Yeah, and moose grow that tissue very rapidly, um, as, as do elk. Some of the fastest yeah. growing of all mammalian right. tissue. Right. Um, is it pretty important for them to uh, to have velvet antlers for getting rid of heat in the summertime? I don't really know. Uh, that, you know,
0: I've read that, uh, but I really have no experience with
1: that. Um, are their antlers important? Are they an important tool for defending against wolves and bears, or is that mostly their hooves that they're using to defend?
0: I think it's probably mostly their hooves, yeah. um, but, you know, I I think antlers could be effective, but you know, antlers are mostly designed for fighting other bull moose and establishing dominance and that's probably true with with all of the antlered animals, whereas a lot of the horned animals actually do use their horns for defense. Right. Thinking specifically of animals like muskox. You sure. know, that's muskox don't fight very well with their feet. They use their horns and they're yeah. very good. Mountain and goats as well. Mountain right? goats is another good real good example, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and they never, never get rid of those horns or with them all the time. Right. So, yeah. yeah, if that was your primary weapon, it wouldn't be uh, evolutionary, yeah. very savvy <laughs> if you only yeah, had them for right. part of yeah. the year. Yeah. How big is, is a big moose? Like, what does what a big bull moose in his prime weigh on the hoof? Well, you know, that uh,
0: there have been surprisingly few big bull moose actually weighed. It's a hard yeah. thing to do. It is a hard thing to do. And you'll, you'll find that's true with almost all animals that weigh more than about 500 pounds. Yeah. Very few people take the time to actually weigh them. But uh, we had one very creative biologist that lived in Galena. And uh, he was curious about all kinds of things. He trapped small mammals and he kept good lists of birds. And uh, he just had a very good scientific curiosity. And one fall he was determined to find out how much these big bull moose weighed. And so he he had a riverboat, and he had a great big uh, galvanized tub with him. And when he found uh, a camp where someone had shot a moose along the river, he would go away all the parts and pieces, and he would take the gut pile and put the gut pile in the tub and weigh all that. And he did uh, around 10 moose, and as I recall... They weighed between 1,200 and 1,600 pounds, and that doesn't include blood loss. So you're
1: going to have a little bit extra for blood loss there. I've been fortunate to guide in a situation where I can weigh all of the elk that we get um, guts in um, before we've caught on them or anything. So, you know, they lose the blood that they lose between getting shot with an arrow and where we find them, and then we bring them back in and we... You know, we get their quote unquote live weight. Yeah. And then we get their, their hanging weight once we've skinned and, and gutted them and uh and then we get meat yield as well. And it's been very interesting. But I've yet to weigh an elk in Oregon that weighs over eight hundred pounds. Okay. I've seen some pictures on my in videos on my cameras that you know, looking at them and then comparing them with bulls that I've had on the hooks. I know that there's eight hundred pound elk out there in the beginning yeah. of September. Yeah. Um, but these guys that talk about 1,000-pound elk or, you know, especially the guys that talk about how much yeah. black bears weigh. Like, nobody's ever put them on a scale. Right. Like you've, yeah. It's hard to do. It's yeah, really it hard, hard to, to do. do. Yeah. So they're just guessing, and, and, they're, and they're crappy guessers.
0: Well, you and I think alike because I am very interested in body weight of animals, and I think it's very indicative. Uh, I did a lot with caribou body weights, uh, and uh, I've also done a lot with wolf body weights. And yeah. That's, that's a, another great example. That's another great example. Wildly. You see, you see people with with the new wolf hunting and trapping that's going on in Idaho and Montana with these gigantic looking wolves, but very few I've seen verified weights, and I know I I know that the heaviest wolves I have ever heard of that have been weighed on verified scales are around 145 pounds.
1: That's bigger than any I've heard about. Yeah. yeah. Most of the guys, and I, I talked with a lot of the guys that work for different state agencies and, uh, and are actually putting these wolves on scales. Yeah. And like 132, 134 seems to be the absolute top end of any yeah. wolf um, yeah. in the lower 48.
0: Yeah. Well, I think actually I heard of one that uh, Mike Smith, working with wolves in Yellowstone, has one in the low 140s. Okay. I know of, there are several wolves from Alaska that have been in the low 140s. Um, it's a I big sh- animal. It's a it, that's a
1: it's a huge animal. When they're uh, all poofy in the winter time, it yeah. like it looks like a two hundred pound animal, but it's it's just not. It's the same no, as mountain lions. No, that's right. Yeah. And well, I I actually
0: came up with what I think is the theoretical maximum weight for a wolf. Okay, uh, and that is, I shot a wolf that weighed one hundred and thirty two pounds, and that wolf had eight pounds of moose meat in its stomach. Okay, and so. The empty weight of that wolf would be 124 pounds. And at the necropsy lab at the Department of Fish and Game in Fairbanks, we have necropsied thousands of wolves. Mm -hmm. uh, And one of the things we always did was weigh stomach contents. And the heaviest stomach contents we ever came up with was 22 pounds. So if you take my 124-pound empty wolf and you add... 22 pounds of stomach contents to it, then you're getting up in the realm of the high 140s. And so I think the theoretical maximum weight of a wolf is around 150 pounds. Okay. So that would be the biggest wolf ever with the yeah. fullest stomach that and you could have. I well, you know, I have never heard of a wolf that weighed 150 pounds. Uh, I've never heard of a wolf that weighed 145 pounds. But I think if you take The heaviest possible wolf with the heaviest possible stomach contents, you're going to be right around 150. And let's put that into
1: perspective that people can handle a little bit. Um, Take a 124-pound human and put 22 pounds of meat in front of them, (laughs) right? That's uh, like 70 hamburgers. Right. Okay, well, you'd say, have to
0: look at the Guinness Book of World Records <laughs> here to see you go. if that's
1: possible. <laughs> I don't think it's possible for a 124 pound human to no, eat 22 pounds no, of meat. No, I don't think so. The wolves can consume a hell of they a lot. They can.
0: And, you know, you know it. When you find a wolf that's just come off a moose carcass, you're out darting wolves, put radio collars on or something, and they can barely waddle away from the kill. Yeah. And uh, if you push them hard enough, they start regurgitating sure. to lighten their load.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, coyotes on a lesser scale attempt the same thing. Uh, I remember calling in a coyote in Montana one time when me and a buddy were sitting on a hillside hunting elk and we saw a coyote way out in the sage flat and, you know, did the right thing and called him in. Um, as he was on his way in, right at about 600 yards, he bailed off into the sagebrush and he, um, caught a rabbit and it was a baby jackrabbit and he tipped his head back and swallowed the whole <laughs> thing. And, uh, I, I thought, well, this is over, you know, and uh, I squeaked at him a little bit and he had a little bit of waddle in him, but he came on for the next, you know, there's just not a, there's not an amount that they're ever satisfied with or canines are pretty gluttonous, including, you know, my labs sitting on the porch out here. If you put food in front of them, they're going to figure out a way to eat it. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Um, How big is a big bull
0: caribou? Well, the biggest bull caribou ever weighed was 700 pounds. But, you know, and that was on ADAC. Yep. Um, I'm always a little suspicious of those very round numbers. Sure, of course. And, And especially... If you're a stickler for body weights, you want to make sure that the person used a calibrated scale that's mm-hmm. not off by five, ten pounds or something, yeah. which it's easy to do, especially when you're talking about weights of 700 pounds. But of course. The next heaviest caribou I know of uh, that I think is maybe a bit more reliable was a Nelchina bull that weighed 695 pounds. So I think it's safe to say that the heaviest ever, bull caribou is around 700 pounds. But it's uh, in, in, it, It's rare, I would say it's rare, to find a bull over 600 pounds. But you run into the same problem like we were talking about before. Not that many
1: big bull caribou have been weighed. Is there a proportional relationship between body size and antler size? Uh, well, there probably
0: is a relationship But I can tell you from my work with looking at the Boone and Crockett records and the body weights of caribou is that caribou herds in southwest Alaska tend to have bigger antlers for the size of their body. Hmm. So they're kind of the ultimate trophy animal. If you want a great big trophy animal and not a tremendous amount of meat to deal with, southwest Alaska is where you need to go. Mulchatna herd or northern peninsula herd or southern peninsula herd. Okay. Um... Then the Nalchina herd, which has the potential to produce huge trophy caribou, uh, also tends to have caribou of very
1: huge body size. Mm. Yeah. So these these herds, you know, if we were talking about lumpers and splitters early on, but um, you could almost treat them as subspecies. Yeah. Uh,
0: I wouldn't go that far. But there are big differences in size, like the Western Arctic herd animals are about half the size of the biggest interior animals. So, yeah, there are some major differences there. There's been quite a bit of work done with uh, genetics of caribou. And it seems to uh, support the current classifications, you know, kind of Boone and Crockett, which is a quasi-classification. And then the scientific classifications, there are... Woodland caribou and uh, barren ground caribou, barren ground caribou in Alaska, and then the smallest caribou being peary caribou in the Arctic Islands. There are strong genetic differences there. But genetic differences within Alaska are, are not considered to be great enough to even think of them as distinct population segments or special in any way. Uh, yeah. There's a possible exception of one of the herds right on the Alaska-Yukon border. It might show some woodland caribou characteristics. But, uh, you know, the wildlife genetics, it's been around for, the science has been around for 20 or 30 years. But that's a very short time. And so it's rapidly evolving. And so everything you read about Genetics of wildlife populations you need to treat with a grain of salt and realize that you know 5, 10, 15 years down the road scientists are going to change their mind about all that stuff.
1: Yep. Yeah and we have to give them we have to give them that road to do so. Yeah. Yeah. Because if we don't if we say well wait a second you already told us this then that's just a barrier to to improving the understanding. Yeah. So we have to allow for that change. Well the last thing I'll ask you: um, what What is the future of moose? Like, is is there stuff that we need to be doing as hunters, as conservationists, as people that care about moose, to to ensure that they have a successful future? Um, you know, what are some of the the troubles that that lie ahead? Well, one
0: of the big troubles that lies ahead for moose, I'd say, right now, moose in Alaska are very secure. Wildlife in general in Alaska is very secure. We don't have the problems that occur in the lower 48 states with uh, corridors, highways, uh, you know, land, uh, most private land being developed, uh, ranch land being divided into smaller and smaller pieces where it starts losing its value as wildlife winter range and stuff. So I'm not really concerned about moose in Alaska. Uh, the winter tick is creeping towards Alaska and it remains to be seen whether the climate in Alaska is cold enough to keep the winter tick at bay. But winter tick problems are creeping up into Canada and, uh, you know, that's a problem. Uh, climate change is probably a problem for moose. Their range is going to shift north as, uh, you know, uh, climate warms and parasites uh, expand mm-hmm. their range. Yeah. Uh they're also, the brain worm, uh, you know, is creeping up into northern Canada with forestry and logging, where white-tailed deer expand their range north, and then, you know, they carry uh, pneumostrondulus brain worm. That
1: I, I blame white-tail for everything.
0: That affects there. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, uh, the problems there, you know, there are tremendous problems with moose in the upper Midwest, in uh, sure. Minnesota,
1: Michigan, uh Lots of predation issues there, Um, lots of parasite issues. The parasite issues in in New Hampshire and Maine are are just terrible.
0: In the short term, I think, you know, wolf predation on moose in the lower 48 states is going to be a major issue because the one thing we're learning about wolves as they expand their range in the lower 48 is that they prefer elk and moose. Mm -hmm. And elk and moose are going to take the brunt of this additional wolf predation. Uh, Maybe not so much... uh, Deer and you know white-tailed deer
1: and mule deer, but if I certainly wanna, if they want to live on mule deer, they're going to starve to death. because yeah, I right. don't have no. I left. know.
0: I know. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I've talked to a lot of old timers about the good old days of mule deer hunting and uh, what the explanation is and why there's so few mule deer in the mountains now, and I don't know anybody has the
1: complete explanation, but I suspect that predation is a big part of it. You know, with with all wildlife management issues, people it seems like tend to focus on the one thing that they're mad about. Yeah, and it's always multifactorial. Yeah,
0: well, and that's uh, you know, I was asked to give a talk to the Oregon Outdoor Council about our experiences with wolf uh, predation, predation management problems in Alaska, and they asked me my opinion of what I thought was going to happen down here, and I had to say I. You know, I can make some wild guesses, but the situation is so different down here, and there's so many more predators. And every drainage is, is different. You can't really extrapolate from what's going on in Oregon to Montana various other places. And so it's going to take decades and millions of dollars to figure some of this stuff out. Um, but I suspect, uh, you know, with the resurgence of cougars, uh, the lack of trapping there's much less interest in trapping now than there has been um, and then the you know the the wolves that are that are here now uh you know which are a little bit bigger than the previous wolves they're probably twenty percent larger than the original rocky mountain and plains wolves, and whether that has an effect on their ability to prey on on species, I don't know that it will, but it could. Uh, and so I, I think uh, with the land ownership changes in the lower 48 and the resurgence of cougars and coyotes and wolves, I think we're in for some tough times.
1: Yeah, I agree. So got to do our part. And it uh, sounds like we need to get after the predators to the best of our ability, even though that can be a tough thing to do. Yeah. And if you've got two bears on a hillside and one of them's a sow and you care about wildlife, maybe you ought to shoot the sow. I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, sir, thank you for your time. Thank you for your, your contributions to uh, to wildlife in Alaska. And uh, yeah, I, th- I've really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. I appreciate yeah, me it too. very much. Yep.
2: I live in an old cabin with bad to non existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my woodpile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt, or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley Thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store and catch you next week.
1: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan, with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch podcast. I'll catch you next week.